Hi, I'm Eric Ostrill, and this is Live at the Lortel, a podcast all about what's happening off-Broadway, which, as you all know, is nothing right now. Well, not nothing. But off-Broadway, like all theater, is taking an intermission while we figure out how to make it safe for our audiences and artists to come back. First of all, I want to thank you for listening to our show. I hope you've enjoyed our conversations as much as I have. It has been a wonderful experience to spend an hour each week with so many incredible artists. We plan to end our first season with short interviews with the 2020 Lucille Lortel recipients. If you haven't seen this year's Lortel Awards, you can still watch them online at lortelawards.org. This week, I will be interviewing the musical award recipients, Christian Borle, featured actor in a musical, Little Shop of Horrors, John Andrew Morrison, featured actor in a musical, A Strange Loop, Kuhu Verma, featured actress in a musical, Octet, Larry Owens, lead actor in a musical, A Strange Loop, and Grace McLean, lead actress in a musical, In the Green. Next week, we will interview the play and solo show recipients. Francis Jew, featured actor in a play, Cambodian rock band. Michelle Park, featured actress in a play, Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Deirdre O'Connell, solo show Dana H. Edmund Donovan, lead actor in a play, Greater Clements. And Emily Davis, lead actress in a play, Is This a Room? As I said, that was our plan. But we have a couple of surprises for you. We're going to release two special summer episodes. They will be with the incomparable Christine Baranski and Jeremy Pope. I'm so excited to speak with them and share those conversations with you. We'll announce the dates of those podcasts next week. Remember, tweet us at hashtag Live at the Lortel if you have any questions for one of our guests. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy our show. Welcome our guest, 2020 Lucille Lortel recipient, Christian Bohr. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, is it okay if I refer to them as the Lulos from here on out? Absolutely. Please do. Don't you think it has a nice ring? I actually was one of the people that helped invent the Lulo Martini. So I know it very, very well. Yes. What is in the Lulo Martini? It's a Cosmo, but we use fresh pineapple juice and fresh lime. It's actually really quite delicious. I love it. Actually, you can go to the website, lortelawards.org. I was just told to tell you. You can find it right now and make it. I am a huge Little Shop fan. We've had many, many of your cast members on it. Me, myself, has seen the show seven times. In different oh, iterations, surely. No, yours. Really? I mean, yeah, I'm a Little Shop obsessed person. You know, we're not here to talk about me, but... Uh, we kind um, of are now. No, um, yeah. wait, it it I, is a show that's worth that kind of attention. It is worth it. So my first question to you was, what is your history with Little Shop? Well, you know, in, when I went to school to roll around on the floor and, and make people laugh, Seymour was one of the roles as a young character man that I gravitated towards. And so, you know, I sang the material for my classes. I auditioned for Seymour. I was too young. I didn't get it. And uh, I just have always been a fan. I loved the movie when it came out. And then, lo, these many years later, I just fit into a different uh, track and I asked Michael Mayer, may I please? And he was kind enough to say yes. So you knew it was coming and you were the one that reached out and said, I, I want to do all these. I mean, yes. you, you end up playing eight characters in this show, but actually 10 because two of them are voiceovers, right? That's correct. Yeah, there's nothing you could tell me about it that, that I, I don't know. <laughs> it's, um, I do have, for when we come back and you come to see it for your eighth time, yes. whenever that may be, yes. I'll give you a little Easter egg to look out for. I'll tell you later. Oh, it's been a dream. I've never had the opportunity to actually touch the plant. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it comes out, but, you know, I'm a good theater audience member. I would never touch the props. It's not. It, that they're not for us to touch. But Thank you for showing the proper respect. <laughs> that's correct. But your performance of all of these characters was incredible. And I would like to focus on Oren because I love the way that it's dealt with in this iteration, the abuse and the cruelty that is brought upon Audrey is, is just out there. It's just, there's no comedy in it. Nobody's playing anything for laughs you play the seriousness of it. And that to me was what brought such new light 
and life into this production. It gave such gravitas. No, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. It was one of the things when this looked like it was going ahead and I got the script to read with fresh eyes, knowing that I was going to do it and wondering what, how I was going to put my own particular spin on it. I was relieved to read in the book that Howard Ashman didn't try to make it funny. When the abuse starts, it is real and it is scary and it's awful. And I was very happy that we didn't have to try to make light of it and we never thought of it. And the material can sustain that kind of flip. You know, we're like goofing around and having a blast and people are laughing. And then suddenly it, when Audrey comes out and we see the dynamic between Oren and her, it's really awful and it's gross and it is what propels Seymour to committing murder. It has to justify his turn. And so we always took it very, very seriously. I'm glad it affected you the way it did. It did. I mean, I saw the original, the Orpheum, and, you know, that's something that I don't really remember about it. This, it hit me so hard because it, you could see Seymour in the predicament that he is and why he does what he does because you are so cruel. Mm. And... Your chemistry with Tammy, with Audrey and Oren, the two of you cannot have an artificial moment together. The, the way that you work off each other is just magnetic. I love how they infused in this way that Audrey got off on the fact of how cool he was to her and how it made their relationship work. So good. I mean, she, we, never, we didn't talk a lot. None of us really talked a lot about our processes. We just kind of did it and got on board with each other and subconsciously maybe even understood what the other actors were going for. So she and I never had a conversation about what this relationship was going to be. She just has such a deep well. And, you know, she's a creature of the stage. She's unbelievable out there and so fresh and so wounded. And what I love about her specifically is that she has this well, but she never brings it backstage. She's so light and fun and happy. And then she just turns something on, on stage that I, I can't even uh, fathom really. But one of the heartbreaking things for me as a performer with her is that I made the choice early on that Oren thinks so little of her that he doesn't even look at her. She's so nothing that I don't even look at her. And so I miss so much of what she's doing because I made the choice to completely dismiss her as a, as a worthy entity. So I miss a lot of what she's doing. It's so interesting, too, the way Oren deals with everybody on stage. I mean, he completely ignores her. Everything she says doesn't look at her, which is an incredible choice. And with Seymour, too, the way he abuses the hell out of him as well. I mean, there's comic brilliance in that. I love the way he interacts in the chemistry with the three girls, and they're not going to take his shit no, no matter what. That's a wonderful um, palate cleanser for all of it, that they have the power ultimately. What was the most difficult part of working on Little Shop? I mean, I, I kind of know the answer to it because I know that kind of three-minute death scene was tough for you. <laughs> I've read a lot. <laughs> I've been reading up a lot. But I'd love for you to talk about it a little bit for our audience. Oh, by the way, I know you're not a social media guy, and I respect that completely, but um, your name comes up all the time, number one, because we've had Gideon, we've had Jonathan, we've had Michael, we've had a lot of people, and up on the feed, they keep asking for you. So I'm it's so nice. happy to be able to to deliver. I'm happy to deliver. <laughs> I think it's charming. So That's very sweet. Thank you for telling me that. Um, no, as you said, the hardest part was um, working with that mask, which is a death trap. I can't breathe in there. Um, but I ended up making it work, I suppose. I think also the hardest part is not getting bored by my own choices because there was such a freedom in the rehearsal room to be anarchic and creative. But at some point you have to lock down your performance just for the sake of the other actors and for the sake of your own mental uh, wellness. <laughs> so I get sick of my own voice sometimes and some of my own acting choices, but they seem to still be working. So I, I go easy on myself. I'm here to tell you seven times through and every joke hits it You've taken every, I mean, the old man, the, the guy that discovers the plant. 
I love that moment where he comes in and everything is kind of cheery and animated and it's kind of a cartoon. And then all of a sudden, you know, we need a moment, obviously, for Seymour to, to find the flower on the floor. These are all choices that, that come from you and the freedom to play in the rehearsal room. That's right. And by chance, I mean, that we needed a reason for one of the flowers to fall on the floor. And so Michael Mayer just stuck a yellow one in there one day. And it just, I, again, I think it was just in the moment on the day in the rehearsal room, I decided to make a ridiculous choice to make people laugh. And by, you know, chance, kismet, it ended up being the actual choice. Um, there were a lot of rehearsal room choices that were not proper for the stage that did not make it, but that was one of them. I'd say everybody that's come in that's been a part of this iteration of the show has said that that rehearsal room and this process has been the most wonderful process that anybody has had. It was. It was from beginning to end, joyous and collaborative and easy and breezy. And um, we were all in awe of each other and everyone was a nice person. There was not a lot of ego in the room. You know, healthy ego. Everyone wanted to be good and everyone wanted their work to be good but we just got such a kick out of each other from day one. How are you dealing with what's going on now? I mean, Broadway shut down, obviously, before off-Broadway. So do you have something to add about when they shut you down and, and what happened? Only the details. We shut down right when Broadway shut down. They thought it was the responsible thing to do. We saw the writing on the wall, and we actually had a meeting that night before. Uh, and we as a cast were grappling with reality and asking ourselves, we know this is inevitable, what are we doing? And we just kind of, and this was a conversation that was ha happening right up until places on that Wednesday night. Um, should we be doing this? Is it our responsibility to make the call for ourselves and for the audience? And we decided ultimately that it wasn't our call to make and we did the show that night. And then we came in on Thursday to rehearse Jeremy Jordan, who was coming in. We were halfway through. We finished Act One. I got a glimpse of what he's going to do with Seymour. And I can tell people that when we come back, they are not going to be disappointed. He was fantastic. The writing on the wall was finally crystal clear. And we walked away. It's heartbreaking. I miss everyone terribly. I don't think we're going to be back for some time. I don't think we should responsibly. It was really hard in the last month to grapple with the reality that our industry is probably going to be the last thing to come back. So I've been doing a lot of writing <laughs> and uh, playing a lot of board games to stay sane and cooking, you know, trying to talk to friends as much as possible and, and keep things upbeat. How, how have you been doing? I'm good. We actually, we, we came down to Miami Beach and are kind of isolating here. Yeah, it's, it's quite beautiful. And they've started opening parks now, and so can actually get out and exercise a little. Are you in New York? Yeah, M Manhattan. I mean, are you able to get out and take walks? And it's, it's, it's tough, right? What do you do? You know, it's, um, I'm able to get out, able to get to the park, Central Park, and you know I'm still gobsmacked by people who are out without masks on. I, it just can't. You know, it's a gesture of respect to your fellow citizens. People just wear masks. I just it it stuns me. But that aside, no, there's nothing to do. I'm I'm ready for when it comes back, but it's not going to be for a little while. It's taken a toll on the whole community, and but I think that we did a great job at the Lortel Awards to kind of make a new kind of normal for the awards ceremony. And it was such a ray of sunshine. I'm so grateful. It made me so happy. We met. I took Mary Beth Peel the last time. That's that's when we yes. met. Yeah, ah. yeah, yeah. And um, she had never seen Little Shop, and I looked over to my left and. She looked over me. She was like, I, I cannot believe it. I've never seen this in all of my years. And by the end, you know, the, the tears were coming from Mary Beth Peel. And she oh. just, we just, that was the last, the last time I saw it. And um, I can't oh, wait. It's an honor to have her there. Thank you for introducing her to me. Oh, I, she's a big fan, as am I. And I can't wait for Little Shop to come back. Congratulations, Christian Brawl. It's a real honor to talk to you. I, I hold you in very high esteem. I think you are an incredible artist and um, a great person in our community. And I have so much respect for you and your craft and you as a human being. So it's a real honor. So thank you. It's made my heart burst. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you.
Let's welcome our 2020 Lucille Lortel recipient, Grace McLean. Welcome. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh my god. Very goodness. exciting. So nice to have something to celebrate right now. Yeah, it's nice to kind of <laughs> glitch onto a little bit of light and accolades and something during this time for sure. Congrats. I want to talk a little bit about your incredible acceptance speech and how hysterically funny <laughs> that was sort of the messing of you and your husband. Oh, yeah. Talk about it a little bit. And if you haven't been able to see it, you can look on your social media and look it up. But it was hysterically funny. You looked gorgeous. Thank you. Talk a little bit about that moment when you won and the acceptance oh, speech. Oh, gosh. hysterically funny. Well, thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to get dressed up. You know, I know we were at home, but I wanted to honor the day. Also, it was my mother's birthday, so we had a little sort of celebration with her right before the awards. So my husband and I got dressed up for that. And honestly, it came together really fast because the day sort of caught up with us. And I said, oh, whoops, you were going to put on a dress, right? So I did it in like half an hour. But the nice thing about that is no one sees the back of your head. So as long as those curls in the front were looking good, <laughs> that's okay. You didn't have to look at the back. <laughs> and then, yeah, gosh, I truly was just so honored to have been nominated and for my show in the green to have been recognized with these nominations. I did not expect to win a thing, let alone for an actress. My husband, he had this champagne that we had been saving from our wedding. And we were like, let's drink it tonight. And he popped it right before... And I said, let's just drink it through the whole thing. He said, no, we're going to save it for that category. And I said, all right, all right, all right. Just pop it now and pour it in my glass and we'll get it over with. <laughs> and I was just so completely shocked. I sat sort of like laughing <laughs> for a little while. And then, yeah, we drank that whole bottle of champagne and then some. And then some people reached out to me and were like, where's your speech? Where's your speech? Got to make a speech. So we decided that we had to do it. But my husband, his name is Christopher Ryan Grant. He's a fantastic actor as well. He needs some attention too. So <laughs> we had to make sure that he was- Oh, you had to marry an actor. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what that's like. So he chose that child's accordion that I have and decided to uh, play me off. <laughs> Which was hysterically funny. And you can look this up and Grace gives her whole acceptance speech and she's taking it very seriously and thanking everybody. And then in comes your actor husband playing you off. It was so great because the payoff was wonderful. And <laughs> I was saying before, because we were just watching it again before you came on, you got to be a good actor like yourself to really be able to capture the comedy of that. It was oh, brilliant. It was thank so, you. so good and hysterically funny. And thank I you. see that your suntan is getting a little better. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Oh, Oh, man. But thank God for that sunshine. Oh, wow. Really just turns the day around. It does. You're in New York during this? Yeah, I am. I'm in Sunnyside, Queens. Yeah. So I see that with your pale complexion, I guess you were outside a little bit too much. And yeah. You have to remember that you have a lovely pale complexion. The sun will, <laughs> will burn you. Yeah, it'll bad. crisp you right up. Let's talk a little bit about your show in the green. How long have you been working on it? Where did the idea come from? Yeah, so I really started messing around with it in maybe 2012, sort of seriously. Sorry, let's be very clear to okay. our listeners. You wrote it yes. and you starred it. Yes, I did. Yes. So I studied medieval art in college along with drama, but the art was just because it was one of those things that I just happened to like. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but it's one of those things where I feel like if you have an interest in a thing and you don't really know why, like, why not just find out about it. So I was taking a bunch of art classes and this woman, Hildegard von Bingen, kept showing up and I was so fascinated by her because it's the 12th century, it's Germany, and she is making art and music that's so ahead of its time and so singular. Nobody else in that period and for really like centuries after was making anything like that. And I was just fascinated with her. So after I graduated, I kept doing my own little like niche nerd research because I just liked it. I clearly have an interest in this. Why don't I try to start writing something to respond to it because I'm so inspired by her. So I started writing some music and I wasn't quite sure where it was going. And I just kept the research and the music. And then eventually, ooh, I figured that it would be like palimpsestuously, something would come together where if I kept generating material, I would find out what it was that I really wanted to share about this woman. Because, you know, it can be kind of hard. 12th century, how do we get a modern audience to care about this lady. After a couple of years of doing this, I went back to one of the first texts that I read, and I was reminded of Hildegard's early life, which is what the musical is inspired by. She spent the first about 30 years of her life locked in a cell with another woman, <laughs> electively, to sort of live like hermits, this really intense, ascetic lifestyle. And it was that woman, her mentor, Jutta, who 
fascinated me even more beyond Hildegard because it's the second half of Hildegard's life where she like made all of these things. But this first sort of dark period, I thought that had to have been some kind of weird, fertile, traumatic place from which she then went on to lead such a creative life. So I wanted to explore that sort of origin story and that relationship between Hildegard and Jutta. It's a fascinating subject. We don't really know what to expect in terms yeah. of what the subject's going to be. Medieval nuns being locked in a room for 20 years. Yeah. Unbelievable, like what can come out of that? How long he'd been working on it? What sparked it to sort of cut it off to where it started the journey as to starting getting produced, etc.? Yeah, so I started really focusing on generating material in about 2012. And it was a lot of like responses to Hildegard's own work. I was listening to music of hers and reading poetry of hers and started to play with some of her music and play with some of her words, but also just sort of make it my own. And I worked with some collaborators throughout the years, but when Lincoln Center got involved, the end of 2017 is when they commissioned me. I really started to like hone in and zero in on the story. And my research shifted a bit from just Hildegardian to some more material about trauma too. I read a couple of really interesting texts. The Body Keeps the Score is a really, really great one, trauma and recovery, because I realized that that's really what these women were dealing with. That locked in a cell situation is I think its own kind of trauma, mm -hmm. but they were in that place sort of trying to heal from their own particular sort of feminine wounds. And that in particular is like super, super, super fascinating to me. <laughs> that kind of healing process. It's different for everybody, but that to me seemed like that was the story and that was the spark. And that is what, again, these are kind of assumptions that I was making, but it's the story that I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell the story and sort of frame Hildegard's own creative journey as coming from this place of personal healing. Yeah. I was reading an interview that you gave and you were talking about taking a peek into people's corners <laughs> and what lies underneath and what can come out of that. Yeah. Can we talk about that? You touch on that just a little bit. I think it's so inspiring and healing. I mean, in the show itself, there's a lot of talk about darkness and light and like finding the light in the darkness. And gosh, I think that there are so many little like dark corners and dark cobwebs that we all have personally and like collectively, <laughs> societally and culturally that are actually like full of such richness. And I think it's so, so, so worthwhile to dig into those scary little places that we might want to turn our backs from because I think it's in looking at that that we personally and collectively can begin to heal. And it's in not even just looking at them, but maybe looking at them in a slightly different way. And that takes creativity and that takes artistry. And that's what I think these women were dealing with. And that's what I think that we as artists are dealing with as well. Looking at the things that maybe the people in the center <laughs> are not quite ready to look at. So it's up to us to sort of go a little bit past the safety of the boundaries to sort of make that okay. <laughs> and it's interesting how we're all as artists and non-artists and us as a world now, a nation, what's happening here and trying mm -hmm. to find those sparks of light in this very dark and horrible time, trying yeah. to see anything, trying to follow some sort of light or see something. Yeah, we're all staring at the same big void. <laughs> and it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> but I also find, you know, I can imagine if this were not happening, what I would be doing on a day like today. And what I would be doing is running. I would be running from one thing to another and filling my time with busyness. And I think that's partly an artist thing, partly a New York thing, but partly like an American thing is to fill our time with stuff. And so I find that happening a little bit now too. There's still like little things to do, like little jobs to have and having conversations with right. new people. And it doesn't feel the same as it used to. It's like, it's its own kind of uncomfortable. And I find if I have too many of those things in a day that my anxiety goes like, oh no, oh no, oh no, that's too much and that's uncomfortable. What feels better is to just like sit with that void <laughs> and like stare into that abyss and sit with that kind of discomfort because I think that there's an opportunity in that. That's definitely like a privileged thing to say, but to have that kind of slow down because not everybody does. Not everybody does get to slow down right now. You know, yeah, but I think as artists, and you're talking to a lot of artists on here, which is our yeah. audience, we have no choice but to slow down. But what are you doing? I mean, you seem to be someone that's always working on her craft and her artistry. What are you doing to keep your 
creative juices flowing and what are you doing now when we're looking at this void? Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to find a balance between doing things and also doing things that feel good. (laughs) I think that sometimes those can be different things. Like I do have some projects that I'm working on. I have a couple of different collaborators that I'm working with on some new musicals and we check in with each other. We have conversations. We go away and make something and then share it with each other. And even if that takes 20 minutes, if that takes three hours, that feels like a nice and nourishing thing. Not all the time. Sometimes what feels like a nice and nourishing thing for me is to say, I don't want to do any of that. I'm going to sit and read my book all day. I'm not going to look at any emails. I'm not going to respond to any calls. I just have to read this book. And that feels really nice. And sometimes what feels really nice is making my perfect cup of coffee. You know, just like a small, tiny little basic thing that has to do with caring for myself. And I do try to balance all of those things. So it's not just about generating material because that, ooh, 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 those wheels will just get real tired real fast. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really great piece of advice that you say. If you feel like you're doing too much or you feel like the wheels are just spinning too much, you can actually choose to read a book or to watch a movie or do something. Because I don't know about you, but for me, when the day is filled with interviews and work, et cetera, et cetera, you know, after like three hours, after the first two months, now I'm exhausted when you're working half a day. It's so interesting to find that balance in art and in everything. Absolutely. Oh, something else I want to say about that too, is I think the exhaustion comes a little bit from, there's no real sense of beginning or end. Like there's no reward. Like I've done a couple of concerts online and ramping up to it, I get the same kind of like, oh, a little bit of nerves. Oh, here we go. Am I going to remember the words? (laughs) You know? And then you do it and I can like trick myself into being like, oh yeah, this concert, here I go. I'm breathing. Oh, I'm kind of sweating. This is kind of a lot of work. <laughs> and sometimes people are responding, you know, you see a little text on the side. Oh, it kind of feels like you're together. And then, whoo, all right, that's the end of that. And then it's over. And then it's just you alone in your house. <laughs> and there's no denouement. There's no, ah, let's go to the bar and have a drink. You're just like, I'm still, that all just, nothing changed. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. Because when it's all said and done, you've worked so hard for whatever it is, and then the computer goes down for whatever it is, and then you're like, what? Did that just, just happen? Just here, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. absolutely right. I have never heard anybody say that so, so well. So I feel I like we've got to like give ourselves a little reward to like know that it's the end. I don't know what that is, but it's starting for me anyway. I'm thinking about like, how do I recognize that that was a thing that was accomplished as opposed to just like the computer's closed and I'm still here and I guess I'll just move on to the next thing. I think little rewards that we can give ourselves, even if it's just, I'm going to go stand outside in the courtyard for a moment just to like, Well, for me, that was reward enough to be able to release like that and for you to say so perfectly. (laughs) I want to say congratulations again. Thank you. Uh, You're a very talented actor and musician, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking a couple of minutes and sharing with us. Oh, my Um, absolute pleasure. Let's welcome our 2020 recipient of the Lucille Lortel Award, my dear friend, John Andrew Morrison. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hi, Eric. Hi, how are you doing? First of all, congratulations. Well, thank you. Your win, <laughs> I think anyone that loves you and adores you, like we all do, is a win for everybody. I think everybody in Miami could hear my shriek down <laughs> Collins Avenue when they called your name. And even when you were nominated, it was a shriek of just pure joy for someone that's been I mean, in the industry for a bit. Just incredible. I know. It only took about 20 years, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was speaking with another friend of mine. He's like, how does it feel? And I was like, you know, the theory is you just have to waste the bastards out. <laughs> <laughs> you got to just wait. You got to wait. <laughs> just wait them out. Wait them out. Just sit in the corner and wait. And then well, let's not diminish your <laughs> incredible talent and vivacity <laughs> and charm and all those things that could go on for a long time. But John, Andrew, and I are old friends and 
not that old, but <laughs> friends for a while. And I reached out to you because you do a lot of video and audio work. And I said, hey, we're starting this podcast. And yeah. Any interest in coming to kind of get it up on its feet? And you take it from there. So I do my side hustle, which is, I have several side hustles. I'm firmly Jamaican, so I have lots of jobs. And one of them, I do a lot of video stuff and I do self-tapes and all of that stuff. And so Eric had reached out to me and said, hey, would you be interested in coming on and helping? And I said, sure. And I even went down and I met with like Zebulon. I loved that name, this guy Zebulon down there. Saw the layout of the space and all of that. And then I think I said to you, well, it depends on when you're going to start because I have this show that I'm going to be doing called Strange Loop and I might be busy when that starts. As it turns out, I think we started rehearsal. Like it lined up that I couldn't do it because we had started rehearsals and, yeah, it just didn't, and I got busy. Yeah, well, it just didn't work out. And <laughs> now I'm on it as a guest. So it's, oh, it's like so it. weird. <laughs> This business is like... I mean, you were ready to kind of hang up your tap shoes and your wig and kind of go do something else. Isn't that right? I absolutely was. It must have been like five or six years ago. There was like an intersection. There was this inflection point in my life and I was doing corporate work. And the company that I was with, they were really interested in growing me to kind of like stay on and just be a part of that company. And I liked the work and I had always had these moments where I would go and sing, say for Michael at Joe's Pub or sing for Michael at Ars Nova. And the career stuff just was not really taking off. And I was like, you know what? There'll always be some kind of art in my life, but I think I'm good. I think I'm going to like stop that. There's always karaoke. There's always the duplex. I can like go do it there. I had really prayed about it and meditated about it and gotten very good in my heart about it. And I was good. And I remember I was walking with my friend Tom and I said that to him and he was like, well, that's fine. That's a life choice and that's okay. And literally, literally, two days later, I got a call from McCorkle Casting. I hadn't been in for them a good 10, 15 years. And I got a call from them and they said, hey, do you know how to do a Jamaican accent? <laughs> and, I, and I said, I kind of know how to do that. And they were like, oh, well, we're putting together this Bob Marley musical at Baltimore Center Stage. Would you be interested in coming in? And so I was like, oh, okay, sure. And I went in and I nailed it. And when I went down there, it was probably the biggest show I had done up until that point in time. I had put so many like roadblocks. I went to the corporate job I was working at and was like, ah, you know, this thing happened, but I understand if you want me to stay and I can step back. And literally the end of that workday, they came to me and said, well, you can't just work remotely, go. <laughs> and so like everything that I kind of like put up to go, acting kind of went, no, you're coming. And so I went and I did it and I just loved it. And so when I came back to New York, I was like, I don't think I can do this corporate job anymore. I went back to doing Excel spreadsheets and stuff. And I was like, yeah, this is not it. <laughs> and so I made a plan and it took about a year and a half, two years. And I kind of phased out of corporate life altogether and started working full time as an actor. And then I would say that the career changed. Like when I started rehearsing things during the day, things changed because I was doing a lot of corporate work and then rehearsing things at night. And yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> Let's touch a little bit on A Strange Loop. Uh -huh. Fantastic, incredible show. I remember I texted you after. I couldn't I move after. <laughs> you were a I even come back and say... <laughs> Hello. It's very difficult to put that show into words, but you played the character's mother. And I'd love to talk about the journey of A Strange Loop for a few minutes. My character name was Thought Number Four, Thought Four. And in the journey of A Strange Loop, the show has a looping structure. And so all of the thoughts at some point in time play mom and all of the thoughts at some point in time played dad but towards the end of the show thought four kind of like takes mom on in the most fully realized way that you see who plays 
thought number two also has like a moment where mom is more realized, but like later on when I take her on, it's even more realized. So there's a fuller costume, there's a wig and da 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 da. And it kind of takes on the last about third of the play. And it goes into some really heavy stuff about homophobia and the black church and judgment and guilt and shame and him kind of like exercising those demons in a Tyler Perry style gospel play. And it was always like a very stunning moment. So I'll tell two things about it. The first thing was Michael had asked me years before, maybe like 10, 12 years before the show, he was doing a cabaret at Ars Nova called Dirty Laundry. And he'd done cabarets, which were these trunk songs that he had put together, which were very personal. And he asked me if I would read these voicemails from his mom as interstitials between the songs in the cabaret. And so I sat at the side of the stage and I read these voicemails and that was a plan. And I think about a week or so before he said, hey, I have this song that I'd love for you to sing. And it was Periodically, which is the song that I sing in the show. And so he gave it to me and I was like, this is amazing. This is a whole life in a song. And so I did my job that day. I sat and I, I read the things and I sang that song. And then he kept asking me to come back and sing it. I sang it at Joe's Pub. And then there was like another Joe's Pub thing. And then someone gave him the idea. I'm not sure who it was. It might have been Maria Goyanes who is now at Willie Mammoth, but was at the public then, gave him this idea that, hey, I think there's a show here. And he had another monologue, and he put some of those trunk songs together with it. And then we did like a workshop at Playwrights Realm, and on and on and on. And like, I kept moving along with it. And every iteration, he kept asking me back, which was such a gift, right? And then the biggest push on the show was about five, six years ago when Musical Theatre Factory started, when we started in the gay porn studio, <laughs> which is also a hilarious story. There's this gay porn studio in the middle of midtown Manhattan. And when they're not doing that, they allowed us to make musicals in their stage. And that was where Musical Theatre Factory started. Did you not know that? Surprisingly, yeah, so no. Music so Musical Theatre Factory started in the shooting stage. <laughs> <laughs> of a gay porn studio in midtown Manhattan. And we would climb up these four flights of stairs to go to this freezing place. Oh, uh, yeah. And we'd have to leave if they were going to do a shoot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was... In those started. days, you can get a lot more salad. <laughs> you need a lot more. <laughs> anyway. Um, no. So Musical Theatre Factory was like the biggest... That was when the iteration of the show that you're kind of seeing now really got developed and came to be. And then Musical Theatre Factory moved to Playwrights Downtown. It became one of the companies for Playwrights Downtown. And then all of a sudden, we just started seeing Kent Nicholson like showing up at like every single like reading or a thing that we were doing there. It'd be Kent Nicholson, who is the... I'm not sure exactly what his title is at Playwrights. I should know. But he's responsible for musicals at Playwrights, right? So there's Tim and Adam. And then Kent is like the literary guy around musicals. And so he just kept showing up and we started to kind of go, well, maybe there's going to be a life there. And then slowly but surely, that absolutely came to be and did it last year and phenomenal. That's my involvement with the show and playing mom. Michael just kept asking me back and back and back and back. And for the record, Ken is the musical theater producing associate at Playwright. Yes. Thank you for doing research. <laughs> the fact checking. Being immersed in this show every night that is so graphic and it hits everyone I think in the place where I mean listen I remember I was sitting in a row with people of a certain age and I remember at the beginning of it I think I came to a matinee for probably subscription people and I remember at the beginning it was kind of like uh, uh, I don't know what's what and then at the end it was cathartic yeah. it was such a magnificent beautiful piece of theater and to be able to see your friend up there do what you do best was life-changing at least for me to see someone you <laughs> love so much that has worked so hard in this industry and just kept getting back up i'm so happy for you I'm so, so happy for you where were you and what happened when you won your award 
excuse me, when you were a recipient? I was here at my sister's house. I had been in the city for a while and I came up on Saturday and I was in the guest bedroom by myself, just like watching, going, oh, okay, well, I don't know what's going to happen. And then they said, it's a tie. And I went, oh. And then they said Christian's name first. And I was like, okay. And then they said my name and I was like, wait, what? (laughs) 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 I just was like, wait. And so I just kind of like sat there for a while. And then I watched like a few other things. And I kind of like came down very quietly down the stairs and like looked at my sister and went, I just won a Lortel Award. (laughs) She was like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was that lyric, it's a quiet thing. It was thrilling. You know, after 20 years, for someone to have your name in their mouth was exciting. And what was like really great, I had just done a workshop with Philippa Sue. And so that was like great to see her there and then hear that. I just love that. I'm so thrilled for you. There's nobody I'm more pleased for to see you on this journey. And I can't wait to see what you do next. I hope A Strange Loop comes back in some iteration of some kind. I know you probably can't talk about that at this moment. We don't really know what's around the corner. but Yeah, it's such a weird time, right? But I just want to say how happy I am. Congratulations. Oh, thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Let's welcome our guest, 2020 Lorto recipient for Octet, Kuhu Verma. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm still kind of glowing. It's very surreal. Well, you look like you're glowing. <laughs> oh, you want to tell me a little bit about what it was like? The award show was a little bit different this year, but you want to just take a couple of seconds and tell me about maybe where you were and what happened? Sure, sure thing. I'm in my childhood home in Pennsylvania right now, quarantining. And so I was with my family, which provided a very rare opportunity for us to actually celebrate together, which would not have happened, which is really, really lovely. And it also brought a little bit more nostalgia into the award because when you're in the place where you were building up to your goals and your dreams, and then this kind of a milestone happens, it brings a new beauty to it. How wonderful. Were you just shocked, fell on the floor, or screaming, yelling? There are so many people this season that I respect so much, and especially in my category. I mean, I admire all of these women so intensely, and I've seen most of their performances. And so I would have liked to say that I started crying immediately, and I was honestly in so much shock that I was like laughing sarcastically almost, because I was like, that's a funny prank. (laughs) That's funny. Amazing. It must be such a wonderful feeling to be with your family and see that you've won the award and be able to share that with them. How wonderful. Yeah, it's kind of hard to be celebrating right now, obviously. But I think that this is exactly what the theater community is so good at, especially off Broadway, taking the bat and really trying to find genuine moments of celebration and gratitude. Yeah, those glimmers of light every once in a while within our community, you kind of reach for them and appreciate them and know them. And yes, I think our community is great at that. And you kind of hold on to that moment and that feeling. I see that. I see that across all of the winners and all the nominees that I think we were all kind of aching for just a little bit of gratitude, a little bit of just an an excuse almost to celebrate each other and remember that there will be a time that we are going to be coming back to this and creating again. Oh, that's nice. It's very hopeful. You'll talk a little bit about Octet, how it came to you and a little bit of your journey with the show. So I think Octet is like, I could not have dreamt up a more appropriate show for me to want to be in. If I tried, when I grew up, I was doing so much choir and so much acapella and a lot of my vocal journey has been depending on singing with others and figuring out how to be like a pillar of support vocally for other people. And so to have that aspect be brought into a musical and still have the opportunity to do character work and do independent singing, I just have never dreamt that show could encapsulate both things. And also being a millennial and being the youngest person in the cast and having more of like a tangible connection to the internet age and growing up with it. I mean, I was like 11 years old when I got my first Apple product, my like touch screen, iTouch. So it's really surreal that this kind of an appropriate show would show up in my life at just the perfect time. What's the process for you? How long have you, have the creative team and yourself been involved working on Octet? I mean, we talk a lot on the show about creating a musical from scratch and the journey that people take. Do you remember back to when it started for you and the journey that you're on? Yeah, I owe a lot to a lot of people that are my mentors that 
refer me to a lot of workshops and refer me to a lot of new relationships in the industry. And I owe them so, so, so deeply. And so I believe somewhere along the way, people in the off-Broadway community were like, if you're looking for someone for your first workshop for Octet, just try this girl out. If you hate her, you know, kick her to the curb. And I guess they liked me. So I stuck around. We did two workshops and it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. But getting to know Dave and Annie throughout the process was so magical. And Dave actually writes super fast. I talked to him about this a lot. It was kind of amazing. We would tell him like, hey, we're not sure about this one page, this one little thing. Can you just change it whenever you have time? And he would leave the room for 15 minutes and be back with a new draft immediately. And I think that is because his brain (laughs) is number one, insane. But also, I think he thinks about what he's writing about for a long time. Like the minute that he put pen to paper was maybe only a couple months before we debuted the production. But I think it's been ruminating in his brain for years. So the play is basically about a support group for people that are addicted to different aspects of the internet. You're part of Velma. You fell in love with somebody that you met through the internet and it kind of ruminates and sort of taunts you throughout the whole process that we see you of the show. Can you talk a little bit about Velma and maybe the research that you did to develop this character over the process of the show? Sure. I think I had one of the most personal stories for me personally. I connected to Velma so deeply because I see that kind of rhetoric all the time online. And growing up, I was already used to being a preteen, reading online, the demonizing of the internet. It's something that I'm very familiar with. And even when I was younger, for my generation, the internet is synonymous with community and intimacy in so many ways. So it was kind of like, how can you try to convince me that community equals bad? How can you try to convince me that technology, something that does provide us intimacy, information, how can you censor that? And that struck a chord with me deeply. But beyond that, I think every character is yearning for the same thing, which is to be heard, to be seen, to be loved, to be felt. And that's a yearning that's so human that I feel like it was not just because you add the internet and the digital aspect of it and the addiction and the obsession part of it, it's not too far removed from the very basic human desire and need for just wanting to be part of something, which is why people that are so deeply in the hole of an addiction can find the strength to make it in that room and leave their houses to be in that room full of eight people, to be part of something. That's exactly what I was craving at that time in my life. You as the actor as the person morphing into this character. Absolutely. That's what it felt like you needed. Yeah, it was very therapeutic being around all these people. And you mentioned before, and I find it fascinating, especially when it comes to acapella singing, that you are just one of eight within this cast and finding your voice within those eight people in terms of acapella singing. I really know nothing about it, except I love to hear it. And it's amazing when it's good to your ear and the storytelling. But can you talk about you as a separate entity, you as a singer, as an actor, and meshing with the eight singers? Yeah, it was just as important to have people that could be solo actors and musicians, as well as a part of a moving structure. With both of those things in mind, it was just as important to have people that were open and available to reciprocating someone else's presence in the room. So... Their casting, I think, was so, so beautiful in that way because I think they very heavily took into account who you were, how you listened, how you talked to other people. I think if your personality did not cut it as far as how emotionally available you are at any given moment with each other, it just wouldn't have worked. And for me, what I leaned on the most was listening to everyone else breathing. And I'm sure a lot of other people in the cast can say something similar. After a certain while, I would be able to tell This is how Alex breathes. This is the phrase that Margot starts doing a little bit of this with her tone. This is the note that Star starts adding vibrato around this time. And I can match all those things and we can all click into each other in that way. So it is an extremely new way of intimacy, I think, seeing music that way and seeing people's voices and breath that way. Yeah, it's incredible when you're watching really good acapella singers, how you're working together as one unit. You sort of see them breathing together and working together as like a machine. And you take apart the machine, but you put it back together 
you need all eight of you to create this one sound or all those incredible sounds that come out of you that are telling the story. Yeah, and I think part of the fuckery of that is when you're also then layering up what your character's intentions are and stuff, having to function that, but still having like one part of your brain that's constantly monitoring and checking in with other people's breathing constantly. I think it's just about like the discipline and training yourself. So before every show, we would have to make sure to hold each other's hands, breathe in together, see how everyone's breath is working in the space that day. And we had to do that before every show to make sure we were all synchronized. Wow. And if something like, let's say somebody has a cold or has something outside of the show that's going on, can you feel it? You can taste it. You know that something is off. Oh, yeah. I mean, we would have days that the audience probably could not tell obviously. But for us, I would know exactly when I was sick a couple times, as were a lot of us. And we could definitely tell this person is going to need our mix to be a little bit different today when they hit this note. This person is going to need. And so we were self-mixing all the time and being our own little tech gurus throughout the show. And my soprano buddy, Margot Cyber, I love her. She would be able to see me. And if I was a little bit tense leading up to a note, she would support me or she would take over for me without even really looking at me. Uh, Who can say (laughs) that they have that available to them? So I do think I'm so lucky to have been a part of it. Did you do any research into 12-step programs and becoming part of some sort of 12-step program, being immersed in it and your research involved there? I sure did. For Velma specifically, I did start off doing a lot of research. I do have people in my life that have gone through them and have their own opinions about that. And so I did start there. I think most of my research with Velma went into self-harm and went into how someone deals with the hatred, turning itself into a physical manifestation in a really harmful way. And that was a little bit rough getting into because I think a lot of people in American public school systems have a lot of peers that they know about that have gone through such things or have experienced it themselves. And knowing that your mentality is so friable at a young age, and especially for Velma, I think her mentality and her emotional vulnerability was on so much that any little thing could have distracted her or could have spiraled her. And so kind of researching, but also trying to lasso it up and use it when it needed to be used was the biggest emotional work that I had to do for her. Also knowing, at least for Velma, probably, and anybody in a 12-step program, is it's got to be a very safe space. Otherwise, you're not going to get out of your house or away from your computer or away from your woes to go to a place that's not safe. So, so important. Yeah, and I think that was her main struggle. Velma's main arc, you can say it was about confessing the good and the bad. You can say it was about confessing her love of someone on the internet. But I think at the end of the day, what it was, plain and simple, was... Velma goes to a 12-step program and tries to find where safety is. And near the end, she finds where the safety is. Oh, it's beautifully, beautifully put. You're a very talented young lady. We're so happy at the Lortel for your award this year. It was so well-deserved. And we're so happy that you joined us and gave us a little insight into your character and into this incredible play, which I hope has a future And I hope we'll come back in some way. I have a feeling that it will. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was honestly, truly a pleasure. Let's welcome the 2020's Lucille Lortel recipient for A Strange Loop, Larry Owens. (laughs) Larry. Thank you. And congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you to Lucille Lortel Foundation and to everyone over there and the Off-Broadway League. Like, what a thrill. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. Now that we're talking about you kind of just did another little acceptance speech, which is great. But I would love to talk about, number one, when you found out that you were nominated, that incredible video that you did. And number two, your magnificent, incredible acceptance speech that you sang and wrote. Unbelievable. Never seen anything like that. (laughs) Yeah, well, the virtual acceptance speech. I mean, this is like such a crazy time. This is my first professional acting award, or rather, I think it's my first acting award ever. So because I didn't immediately do something on the night of the show of being like, thank you with like that energy (laughs) that was currently there, I said, okay, let's take a beat and see if we can really, really include like the entire community. Of course, like the role was a big feat, but it was impossible without 
all of the collaborators, all of the creative team, the many producing entities, Page 73, Playwrights Horizons, Barbara Whitman, just it takes a whole village to create a musical. And so I'm so humbled by the recognition and I wanted to do something like we're in this crazy moment of virtual award shows. So I felt like I had the opportunity to do something a little special. So when I'm not acting, I'm a comedian and my comedy has music. So I write these very short, silly songs. Speaking of which, you have your own podcast and I'll give you a second to advertise it. But Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I have a podcast. I had an opportunity to listen to it. Hysterically funny. and wonderful. Oh, my God, thank you. It's called What Makes You Sing. And I have actors, comedians on, and it's an interview podcast where whatever comes up in the interview, we have an in-studio accompanist, James Harvey, who actually played for my acceptance video. And James will just play the songs and we'll just launch into singing. It's such an unusual take on the interview podcast format. I love it. So please, listeners, our audience... If you love Larry Owens as much as I do in A Strange Loop, listen to this podcast. It's hysterically funny, and you never know who's going to show up and who's going to sing what. So <laughs> I love it. I want to talk a little bit about Strange Loop. John Andrew is a dear friend. We had him on. Yes, John Andrew, who won the uh, hotel. I told him that you could hear my shriek from Florida, all over <laughs> New York. When he won, because I feel like within our community, the theater community, a win for a friend or somebody you love is a win for everybody, which yeah. is what you said in your acceptance speech. But I loved A Strange Loop. Life-changing. I mean, listen, little white Jewish boy from New York. It's not my experience, but as an audience member sitting there, it was life-changing. And your performance made me think, made me talk, made me actually not leave my seat for quite a few minutes after the show. I couldn't even go backstage to find the words to speak to my dear friend about how affected I was by the show. Oh, wow. You talk a little bit about Usher's journey and the work that you did with Michael R. Jackson on it. Yeah, I mean, it's the work with John Andrew, it's the work with the company. You talk about watching Usher's journey. That's like, has been my journey as a musical theater fan. I was on stage at Playwrights Horizons and my favorite musicals were made there. In Trousers by Bill Finn, Setting Heart with George, Floyd Collins. Like there's a huge legacy of musicals that just have lived inside of me and one that I've identified with. And so to be able to be in the space of playing one of those heroes that no matter what you look like, people could find something identifiable in. And the link of it is just Michael's genius. He did book music and lyrics, vocal arrangements. So every single drop of ink on the white page, the blank page or canvas comes from Michael's genius. You know, you hear actors say like, it's just the script and it is so true. It's like when you have work that is set up this way, it becomes <laughs> not easy because the work was designed to be difficult, but it becomes a blessing to inhabit it and to go through the journey knowing that there will be a huge payoff for us all. So you knew that kind of going in. Yeah, I felt it from like the very first time Michael sent me the script. I read it and it was the first time that I didn't have to... You know, my dream was to book a Broadway show, like hopefully work my way up through the ranks and then begin to take over the mantle of Stephen Sondheim's work and whatever work that I could sort of rejigger my identity within. Maybe I'll be the first fat black baker in Into the Woods. Maybe I'll be the first openly gay George Seurat on Broadway. But then I read this piece and I didn't have to reshape myself. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to change my voice. I didn't have to put on a crazy costume. I didn't have to do anything besides show up. And that was, I'll use this word again, like a huge blessing, a huge gift of the piece where I saw the opportunity to just be reflected for who I am. And it was crazy. <laughs> what is that like to kind of read a piece I mean, being a musical theater actor for a while now, you've been at this, you know, not a long time, but you've been at it a bit. Having somebody send you a script and looking in the mirror is kind of what you're saying right now. It yeah. was like, oh my God, I don't have to do anything but just show up to this and try to be my most authentic self because this is, this is me. 
Yeah, I was struck by the fullness of it. I was struck that Usher was pulling punches, but he was also showing vulnerability. He was singing from so many different places. And so normally when you're a character type, aka a non-cis white, good-looking male, then you only can do one thing on stage. And this was a chance to do so many things, to be limitless on stage. And the first time I read it, I was like, I hope that I can do this and it doesn't kill me. But it was also exciting because like how many actors get to rise to the occasion of playing Hamlet? How many actors get to rise to the occasion of the Scottish play and Othello? And so here was the Hamlet for me. And so instantly I was like, I have to go and get training. And so I went to the school at Steppenwolf in Chicago and there it's all like straight play actors, very community driven and just so, so about the work and the art. And <laughs> there is a little bit of culture of denigrating musicals, you know, that like, we don't do like musical theater actors, we don't do like New York actors, but here I was a New York actor with a musical that I was training for in the program. But I learned so much about how to navigate all of the many, many acting gifts and challenges of the show. And so that was my first thought was like, wow, this is me and <laughs> I just have to do this. I have to like do whatever it takes to do this and to see it through. And then also like I have to rise to the occasion. So I had to learn a lot over the years of development. Besides that, I mean, going back to A Strange Loop, your endurance, that show is a marathon. Well, yeah, I didn't leave the stage. There's really no break for Usher. And even as he's listening, you know what I mean? John Andrew comes out to sing periodically. And it's, it's this five-minute song. I don't sing until the final bars. But the entire moment is of this uncategorizable connection between mother and son. So it's about being constantly engaged. It's about being constantly plugged in. It's about being the slate of hand, the five-show weekend, the two-show day. 18 songs. It's very, very Leviathan. But that is exactly the sort of thing that I had dreamt about. I dreamt of one day being able to sweat and work hard and do it. And I'm so, so happy that I got to do it and that it was received for its intent. As a Black queer artist, I feel like oftentimes there's like one shot. And if you don't make the basket, then it's like, well, we tried. The fact that all types of communities, like women, men, gay men, straight men, Black audience members, non-Black audience members were able to digest the fullness of it and not poke holes in it. It was really, really thrilling. Yeah. And there's language. There's graphic language in this incredible piece. And I remember my row, I went to a matinee, my row was filled with subscription people. And I remember that kind of moment where the couple to my right were like, uh, 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 what, what's happening here? I don't think they had any idea what they were going through, but cathartic for them at the end. It was, I knew a little bit about the show, but to watch them watch you and watch the journey that you all go on in this musical was a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah, there's nothing in the play that doesn't exist in real life. So any language, any scenes, any depictions are real. So the discomfort with seeing reality on stage, I'm totally open to because <laughs> there was such care and intellect. I mean, you have to talk about Stephen Brackett and how he directed the piece and how oh, yeah. he developed and helped Michael and shape the script and Players Horizons. They're known for this daring. It's the place that you go to when you want to open up new ideas. So by being in such an all-encompassing piece, it was so good to be able to handle all those flavors with skill. And thanks to Steven and Raja Feather Kelly's choreography, which is really like choreographic dramaturgy. Like he brings so much more than just shapes and movement and spacing. He brings a whole litany of style and skill and references to the piece to really help imbue every moment with the tone of what we were trying to communicate. Larry, what is your hope when we come out of this for our community? My hope for the community is that we continue to do what we've always done, which is respond with vitality. Theater is life. It is about life watching life, life writing life, and life celebrating life. So we will live and we'll celebrate. And I know that we have the wherewithal to come together again. I mean, something tells me that this show is going to have a life 
somehow, some way, it's got to because yes. more people need to see this piece of art. And Absolutely. To experience Absolutely. the show and to experience your performance because you are... And the performances of L. Morgan Lee, James Jackson Jr., Antoine Hopper, John Michael Lyles, John Andrew Morrison, Jason B.C. You are a humble young man. I'm glad you included everybody. Thank you so much. Congratulations again. Thank I'm a you. very big fan. I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you for having me. And that's our show. Thanks for listening to Live with the Lortel. While this pandemic goes on, we are asking our listeners to please consider donating to the Actors Fund at actorsfund.org to help support theater artists. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucia Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer Eric Ostro, associate producer Jeffrey Schubart, pressed by Chris Kanarik, social media by Mia Radia, and special thanks to Nancy Hervitz. Live at the Lortel is usually recorded at the Lucia Lortel Theater in New York City, but during this pandemic, it is being recorded remotely by Bryant Falk, Abacus Entertainment.